and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. John Cochran, to everyone, I think most people know you from your work in asset pricing and your previous role at Chicago University. You're now at the Hoover Institution um, and write the blog, The Grumpy Economist. Maybe we should kick off with why start that blog and why The Grumpy Economist? Uh, the blog, uh, you know, I, I was writing, uh, I, was got, I got more involved with policy affairs and, and what's going on in the world. And I was writing op-eds and I found I had lots of opinions that I thought, you know, I felt like sharing with the world, uh, so why not start a blog? I had done some previous sort of essays that I put on a website that attracted some attention, So, what? but I felt like doing it more regularly. So blog at the time was the natural way to do it. The Grumpy Economist occurred one Sunday morning. I was uh, I was reading uh, Paul Krugman's comment column in the New York Times and coughed, splashed down my coffee and said something intemperate about how silly it was. And my children thereby... Uh, uh, called me the grumpy economist for my reaction there, but I'm not a grumpy person in general. That's quite funny. I think Paul Krugman uh, does know how to wind up a lot of people. Um, I don't know where he stands on some things. He, he's a big proponent of that's, MMT. That's blood pressure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's a big proponent of MMT. I know that you're also not such a proponent. Is is that also something that, that gets you frustrated with the way that economics has almost changed today? Uh, I think, in fairness to Krugman, he's he's not a proponent of MMT. Although it is it is fun for me to watch uh, Krugman and company uh, be passed on the left and horrified. No, no, we didn't mean deficits that big. Just yeah. you know, sort of big. <laughs> no, not really. MMT is not taken seriously at all in any uh, in you know among academic economists and, and so forth. It is a it's a uh, very popular thing and, and it's it, it frank it justifies a set of spending initiatives but i, I don't think it's I, that's actually one where I'm, I'm i'm frustrated a lot in economics but uh the reception of mmt has been uh you know if anything um you know i think it's just been about right uh serious economists have thought about it read it commented on it said there's nothing here and um and and moved on so, you know, there's a flat earth society, there's an MMT society, it's a free country. Uh, and uh, that's, you know, in Congress, yeah, they, they take it a little more seriously, but they take a lot of crazy stuff that comes out of Harvard seriously, too. So, uh, yeah, we're gonna- well, I guess the danger is there's these popular narratives that go alongside some of these ideas. And uh, it's coming across all parts of not just economics, but even finance now. Um, and the way central banks are operating is is purely narrative driven. You know, it's always the perception of wording. Um, action doesn't seem to really matter anymore. Well, that, that's that's actually more more frustrating because it's serious people uh, doing it. Now, there's been crazy stuff in economics all along. Tariffs, uh, you know, I think Adam Smith figured out that was a bad idea in about 1760. And nonetheless, we're still basically, you know, our, our public policy is stuck in the mercantilism of about the 1580s. <laughs> so that's crazy. The Fed is, uh, uh, yeah, the central bankers around the world live in this kind of narrative world where they they can push all sorts of levers and exploit all sorts of frictions that nobody really understands. And they've assigned themselves a, a very grandiose place at the center now of directing the whole financial system. And, and now 
uh, stopping the seas from rising and the planet from warming and social racial justice and God knows what all else. Good luck to them uh, with that. Well, not good luck to them. They ought to, they ought to stick to what they know how to do. Well, but that's, that's, that's a, I think, a fascinating place to dig into. I don't know where they started to, to transition away from their primary role around price stability and unemployment and so forth to all these other issues. They haven't done a very good job in inflation and they haven't really done a very good job on, on forecasts just generally. They, they did a great job on inflation up until about two months ago. And, uh, you know, if I were a central bank chairman just before COVID and I saw unemployment rate at like three and a half percent, the lowest unemployment rate of, of blacks and minorities and other disadvantaged groups ever, inflation stuck around two percent. I would have put up a mission accomplished banner and that would have been the end of that. But actually, the, the so what, what you're seeing now, I think, is an a outgrowth of 2008 when central banks took on extraordinary measures, started doing all sorts of stuff and, you know, buying assets, uh, propping up asset prices, uh, bailing out banks, bailing out right and center. And, and uh, Agron, this larger role kind of got stuck. Uh, well, it, it, it became part of what central banks do. Don't think of central banks in terms of interest rates and money supplies anymore. They're in there telling every big bank what to invest and what to do. So then by uh, the 2014-ish, they had thought of themselves, they started thinking of themselves not just as inflation and unemployment interest rates, but in terms of managing the credit cycle and making sure there wouldn't be booms and busts and, and, and just sort of like a, you know, somebody runs a dam, letting just enough water in at the right time. Of course, uh, um, you know, they, they, they talked a lot about it, but they, they got themselves, you know, they were the only competent person in the room in 2008, but then they got themselves in this idea that we're there to run the whole financial system. In the pandemic, then this exploded. And they also, uh, you know, they, they want to take on climate change and other causes. Well, you know, you're a two-year-old with a hammer. Everything starts to look like a nail. So you've got these extraordinary powers. And um, who wants to go to Davos and say, well, what I do is I worry about the mark-to-market uh, requirements on swap contracts at broker-dealers. Or do you want to say, I'm in there to fight for social justice and save the planet? You can see... Uh, that that uh, in, in imperative, which is it's taking over all of our institutions. So the IMF is deep into climate change, inequality, social justice, uh, spending money. The IMF, the BIS, the OECD, the European Central Bank, the Bank of England—they're all way ahead of the U.S. Fed on this on this move. It's it's an incredible time um, because you'd think that this is where you would maybe potentially extend your powers if everything was going well in the economy, maybe start to expand your remit. But there are, as you mentioned, there's still some very big problems around the amount of debt in the system. Uh, you know, inflation may be low in the official terms, but you've still got massive asset prices, which is driving a lot of this inequality. And I would say the central banks are a big part of that. Yeah. And uh it's not like there I've got great successes on, you know, the 10 years of stress testers and we're going to manage everything and make sure everybody, no risks are taken and nobody ever loses money. None of the stress tests ever said, what if there's a pandemic? Gee, have we ever had pandemics before in human history? They completely blew this one. And then every promise made in 2008 just got broken. They bailed out money market funds. That ought to be like the simplest thing in the world is to fix money market funds so they don't need a bailout bailed out uh, municipal bonds, corporate bonds, the airlines, and so forth. 
Um, so they, they're, they're coming off a grand failure of this, we're going to see all the risks ahead and regulate ahead of it. And then what are they going to do? They're going to see even more risks ahead, the, the climate and, and justice risks, not even thinking about cybersecurity, um, another pandemic, crop failure, war, you know, all the things that, that have occurred over and over again in human history. I'm curious around you know the the amount of money that's been thrown into the system and and really there's a perception now that nothing will ever go down for long. Um, any opportunity of any losses is just another buy the dip style moment. I'm curious around what sort of moral hazard have we now brought into the system? That's the you know the, at least in 2008, uh, central bankers, Congress people said, look, we we got to throw money at this problem. But we understand throwing money at this problem brings about moral hazard. Uh, people will lever up too much. They'll count on the bailout. Uh, we'll got to do something about it. And then, you know, they did the Dodd-Frank Act and all the regulatory stuff. Granted, I don't think that was the right answer, but at least they had the decency to think about it. No one's even talking about it now. Now it's just pat ourselves on the back. Hey, COVID came. We threw $5 trillion at it. COVID went away. What wonderful people we are. And I think you're right. You'd be a fool to keep some extra cash around to wait for the dip, because in any event, now we're not just bailing out individual institutions. The Federal Reserve, the, the corporate bond thing, I think, was really a, a crossing of the Rubicon in, in Mario Draghi style. We're going to do what it takes to make sure corporate bond prices don't go down. So corporate bond investors aren't going to lose any money. Well, that's nice. So much for any incentive to keep some money around to buy corporate bonds on the dip, as you said. So it's it's a grand put option. Now, I don't think, you know, in terms of just straight money, that's uh, it, not, you know, the buying treasuries isn't as significant as people think. I, I don't think the Fed is causing a bubble in asset prices as much as other people do. That I'll, I'll give them that one. But certainly the moral hazard that it's perfectly clear in the next crisis that $10 trillion is going to get deployed to make sure that nobody ever loses any money. And, and soon, why? So what's wrong with that? Well, sooner or later, the firehouse burns down. Sooner or later, a crisis comes along and Uncle Sam says, okay, bond markets, we need another $15 trillion, whatever it is, to throw around stimulus money and bail everybody out, and it's not there. And then you have, you know, the best world of all is when no one's counting on a bailout and it comes. The worst world of all is when everyone's counting on a bailout and the bailout doesn't come. And that will happen sooner or later. I'm curious then, you know, where where do you sit in terms of the inflation deflationary camp? Because, you know, I can see from your discussion there two different ways that can go, right? If, if uh, the government decides or the central banks decide that they're not going to continue to fund this, it's pretty deflationary. Um, or they just keep put, putting more money into the system and, and hope for the best. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very careful never to make forecasts so you can't prove me wrong. <laughs> uh, and I think, but I do think we're on a dicey moment where inflation could break out and, and the dangers are, are, are right there. The monetary policy, the new monetary policy framework announced by the Fed reads like a parody of all the things that they did in the 1970s that we learned in graduate school you shouldn't do anymore. Uh, wait for inflation to get really bad before you do anything. Uh, try to push unemployment down by allowing inflation to go big. You know, that this is this is exactly what what you know they were accused in the 70s. Now, um, the central issue is when do people start. Inflation, expected inflation kind of begets inflation. So there's this anchored expectation. Let's try to unpack that so it's not economic language. 
If you know that there's going to be inflation next year, you're willing to pay a higher price today. And if you know there's inflation going to be next year, you're, you're a store, you're going to raise your prices today. So it is so expect when people start to expect inflation, you get inflation, as well as when the Fed is, is pushing on things. So I think this breaks out when people change their minds. Right now, most people say, yeah, we're going to have a little bit of something, you know, like the Fed says, it's going to be transitory. And then in you know a year or two, we'll be back to 2%. Now, and in that case, then it, it likely will be transitory and in a year or two, we're back to 2%. But if people lose faith in that, then it explodes. And then, then you've got a real problem under your hand. Now, what, what causes people to lose faith? Why do people expect inflation to always be 2%? Uh, the Fed says we have the tools to do something about it. And that, that they bought a lot of uh, credibility in, the in 1980. Now, I can tell that's long before you were born, but I was around. Yeah. And let me remind you what 1980 looked like. Inflation got really out of control, and the Federal Reserve and central banks around the world jacked up interest rates to 20%. 20% interest rates caused a massive recession with big unemployment, but that brought down inflation. So what is the tool? The Fed says we have the tools. They won't tell you what the tools are. What is the tool? The tool is a willingness to replay 1980 if that's what it takes to get inflation under control. Now, do you think our central banks will really do that? When people lose the fate, when you know our central bank is loudly saying what we want to do is low interest rates forever, climate change, inequality, you know, so on and so forth, uh, the chances that they would promptly raise interest rates, causing a recession if needed to contain employment, uh, to contain inflation, yeah, when people lose the faith that they're going to do that, then their job is harder. And we have now it's not really about central banks. Our real problem is massive debt. Now, even in the 1970s, we didn't have these debts. Now, the debt to GDP ratio in 1979 when inflation peaked was 25%. It's 100% now. So uh, we are on the cusp of a debt-fueled inflation that central banks can't do anything about. Now, you know, when does that blow up? It blows up when people expect it to blow up. <laughs> uh, that, you know, a financial crisis and inflation is like the Spanish Inquisition. No one ever expects it because if you knew it was coming tomorrow, it would happen today. Now there, um, you know, I think bond market, why are people lending money to the U.S. government at 1.5%? What, what's up with that? Well, they still have the faith that sooner or later, when, after they've gotten fighting about everything else, they will pay back this debt. Once they lose faith in that, once they lose faith that Congress is willing to raise taxes and cut spending, and it's got it mostly coming out of cut spending, uh, if inflation blows up, well, then you lose those expectations. And that one that the central bank can't even do anything about. So uh, I think there's reasons to worry. I'm not forecasting inflation, but you can see we're on a slippery slope where when people start to lose faith, the inflation will get bigger. You'll hear lots of it's all temporary. We have the tools, grand speeches out of central banks. It comes too late. People lose more faith and it kind of spirals out of control. That's possible. How much do you think the comparison between what's happening in the US versus what's happening in Europe is, is allowing the US to have a lot more runway? Oh, what's, what's going on in Europe that's different? Well, exactly. <laughs> we, we, we got rid of COVID quicker, but they're growing more slowly. Uh, they've already passed the Green New Deal. They call it the Green Deal. Uh, nobody knows about it yet. Uh, their central bank is, is out doing this stuff. Um, they still have sort of deflation. I mean, the, the big problem I see in Europe is, is this more secular one. Uh, Europe got stuck in very slow growth. And uh, yeah, American tourists don't realize it because they go to the pretty parts of Europe. 
but European income per capita is 40% lower than that in the US and has been stuck there for decades and getting worse. Now that's about microeconomics. That's about high taxes, uh, difficult to be an entrepreneur, starting new business, uh, sclerotic labor markets, all the sort of classic microeconomic things that make an economy have sand in the gears. And um, it's really sad. I, I, I really hope the European Union, you know, free trade, all that sort of stuff. But that didn't that didn't spark it. Uh, Europe's problem is is uh, a lot of it looks more like Italy than it should. And Italy, it's a wonderful country with an economy that hasn't grown at all since the year 2000. That's a tragedy. Well, that's part of the thinking that why the U.S. is able to get away with such low interest rates at the moment, because they look to the rates that you'll get in Europe, it's it's pretty terrible. And even for European pension investors, it makes more sense potentially to to invest in the U.S. Well, and if European interest rates are even lower than U.S. interest rates. Yeah. Uh, now, in part, you know, low interest rates. Uh, so don't, interest rates aren't really that much to do. Real interest rates don't really have that much to do with the Fed. Uh, real interest rates come from the economy especially over a period of, of years and decades. And I, I view low real interest rates in, in part as a consequence of slow growth. I mean, the U.S.'s growth ain't great either. It's just better than Europe. <laughs> but the U.S., uh, uh, really, our growth, around the year 2000, our permanent growth rate fell by about a half. It's a tragedy. Uh, you know, that just means uh, in two gen- it takes two generations to do what you used to do in, in one generation. Low growth low interest rates come with low growth. If you're in a low growth economy, low productivity, too much regulation, too much taxes, there's no reason for businesses to invest. So they don't, you know, the savings is more than investment and interest rates go down. Uh, So I view it largely as a consequence. Unfortunately, I'm a macroeconomist, but unfortunately, most of the real answers are microeconomic. Uh, They just always seem so obvious that I chose not to study. (laughs) No, but it's interesting. Also, you talk about sort of lower rates, but getting even more lower rates, right? I think that that situation, I don't think people really understand. The the assumption is that if you lower rates, the economy should really take off, but it can actually have the reverse effect. Well, uh, like all prices, low rates can be a sign of low growth as opposed to an inducer of high growth. Same like Property prices. Is it good to have property prices high or low? Well, high property prices are a sign of a prosperous place. But of course, given the place, lower prices are always uh, are always good to buy stuff. So uh, interest rates are the same way. Low interest rates are a sign of bad growth, but they can also help to spur more growth if, if they're lowered. But don't the, the central banks don't have as much control over uh, financial markets as everybody seems to think they do. Yeah, I, I really don't, you know, the cost of capital is the cost of capital. It's from saving, investment, productivity, the economy, a reasonable tax system, uh, you know, the chance for entrepreneurs to make good companies and, and start investments. That That's what really drives financial markets. How much do you think that the narrative management of both governments and the central bank plays really a role in telling people that things are okay and we've got low rates and, but don't worry, economic growth is here? Narrative management and forward guidance and sort of public psychology. I, I think that's the the opiate of the policymaker. We've seen catastrophes with our Centers for Disease Control and, and Food and Drug Administration trying to manage psychology. You know, they, they held back the vaccine for two weeks because they wanted people to think they were taking it seriously. They they stopped the Johnson and Johnson vaccine as a effort to manage public psychology to make people think that they were making it safe. Instead, they had the opposite. And our central banks are deep into this. They they call it forward guidance. And they think that sort of speeches about what we're going to do in the future is the central way to to stimulate the economy. You know, they don't move interest rates. 
and, and they keep buying the same stuff, but they give lots of speeches about the future. And they, they take this seriously. Forward guidance is the key policy tool. Now, uh, <laughs> only people inside the Beltway can think that speeches from politicians have an enormous impact on what people do. Um, you know, get out a little bit, drive around the country. Uh, when you buy gas at a gas station in the middle of nowhere, ask the person behind the counter what, what she thought of uh, Chairman Powell's latest speech about the new procedures and that interest rates might stay lower for six months rather than 12 months. And they will look at you like, what the hell are you talking about? Uh, and there's, you know, historically, again, so I come from the 1970s. Uh, when inflation really got going in 1976, President Ford had this campaign, whip inflation now, there's little buttons, W-I-N, whip inflation now. They gave lots of speeches about how nice it would be if inflation would go down. Earlier in the 70s, they gave all sorts of speeches, oh, it's transitory and union pressures and we have the tools and, uh, you know, we, we think inflation should go down, inflation did whatever it wanted to do. So uh, I'm, I'm going on. I just think it's hilarious that they think... The real question is, do their actions have any effect? But that now they think that their speeches alone have profound effects on, on yeah, bond markets. Yeah, bond markets hang on every word the central bankers say. Uh, but that the guy setting the 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 price of uh, uh, the price of ice cream out in uh, Fresno pays any attention at all to central banker speeches is a hilarious conceit. It's an interesting um, thought experiment as to what needs to be done to actually get the Fed to be much more in touch with. You know, Central America, Midwest, wherever, and and there has been obviously different branches of the, of the Fed around the country to hopefully capture that. But then, if you look within the Fed, it's still very much an academic-driven Fed. It doesn't yeah. look to the types of people that are running business, so the people that actually see on the ground how things are operating. Well, to their credit, they do. I mean, Powell is amazingly good at this. They do enormous amounts of listening. They did a whole listening tour for a year before putting in this new policy proposal. The point of regional feds is to listen to local business people. They, they do a, a listen to lots and lots of complaining about everybody who wants interest rates lower who's borrowing and everyone who wants interest rates higher who's saving. But you're right. The uh, central banks in general, um, the Fed actually is pretty good in this. But there is this sort of bubble where they talk to each other and convince themselves of stuff that, uh, you know, if, if, if they talked a little more outside the bubble, they would, they would, uh, and, and uh, other central banks are worse. That's sort of, you know, the European central bank lives in this. Uh, I mean, I know the academics there, they're all perfectly fine academics, but the policy people talk this little language of the, the language of Davos among each other and, and, uh, uh, talk themselves into all sorts of things. We now we've got to switch back to some of your comments around climate change and inequality and so forth. And it's and it seems like a bit of a a real struggle for the central banks to actually start to do something in this space, particularly given the amount of debt they've got before. Their, their solution always seems to be how can we add more liquidity to the system? How can we add more uh, funding to things? Um, ultimately, climate change you could you could throw unlimited sources amount of money at things and, and maybe not achieve anything, actually, um, if they don't address the underlying growth problems that we have in the- no, I want to clarify, I, I am not a climate denier. I'm, I'm all for climate change is a problem and, and we ought to do something about that problem. And, uh, you know, we as a nation ought to do something about that problem. And, and I'm all for actual science on this. So we should be allowed to say the fact out loud that nuclear power doesn't reduce any, emit any carbon. And that carbon sequestration, carbon capture and sequestration actually does remove carbon. And that it doesn't matter 
where on the planet the uh, solar cells are built. If, if solar cells are built in China and shipped to us, those solar cells remove the same amount of carbon as if they're made by nice union workers in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at three times the cost. Uh, the problem is that central banks have no business at all uh, doing this. Uh, so what's going on now is central banks are getting into the business and, what, and they're asking uh, banks and businesses to, um, uh, to disclose climate risks, which is uh, preposterous. There is no climate risk to the banking system. It's just, that's just a, the climate is not going to change suddenly, unexpectedly, drastically in the next 10 years in a way that could imperil the financial system. That is just an absolute falsehood myth used to justify, let's, uh, since we can't get these things through Congress, let's use the financial system to deny money to fossil fuels and to subsidize whatever the party in power right now wants to do. Forget cost-benefit analysis. If they want to do electric car stations in the middle of Wyoming, the Fed will subsidize. The European Central Bank is already buying green bonds. It says they're underpriced. That means they are printing money to subsidize people's pet projects. They have no competence and, and they have no mandate to do this kind of thing. Um, so I'm, I'm all for climate. I, I, I'm against this because I think climate's really important. And turning it into a underhanded boondoggle run by central banks who are allocating credit to whatever pet projects of politicians are, that's not going to do anything for the climate. It's, and it's going to waste a ton of money. And when people find out about it, they're going to be up in arms. And, and in the meantime, we're not doing the things we need to do about climate. And it's also poisoning financial regulation. They are, they are demanding that banks make up stories that are false. Because you're, you're a bank. And, and the central bank comes to you and says, well, we want you to disclose your climate risks. And you say, there is no climate risk here. No, we want you to disclose your climate risk because the climate's so important. You get the message, right? Cook me a set of books that says there's some climate risk and we're doing something about it. And we're, by the way, not going to invest in Exxon anymore. Well, once you cook the books, you've cooked the books. And, and uh, you know, genuine financial regulation, which is we're... we're we're, we're still in danger of financial crisis. You, we started to mention a sovereign debt crisis. No one's willing to talk. You know, the next financial crisis could well be a sovereign debt crisis. Well, uh, what's your exposure to sovereigns? There's something worth asking. What's your exposure to if there's another pandemic? There's something worth asking. What's your exposure? If China invades Taiwan, what's going to happen to your business? There's something they ought to be asking. But if you cook the books for climate change, for, to, to justify a pre-existing set of climate boondocks, then, uh, then financial regulation goes out the window, climate goes out the window, and, and in even genuine environmental problems, of which we have plenty, are, are forgotten. So climate's important. It's just central banks ought to do what central banks ought to do. And, and uh, you know, the DMV shouldn't be in charge of climate change. We've got a perfectly good environmental protection agency. We got Congress, administration. Let's pass a sensible science-based climate policy. Yes, but don't sneak it in through central banks. Well, they're sneaking it in, not just through central banks, but through all the asset owners, asset allocators, asset management. It's it's becoming a huge cost to everyone, all this reporting. Well, that's, you know, if they're honest, that's fine. If an asset manager wants to sell an ESG product or a climate-friendly product or whatever, and if people want to uh, suffer lower rates of return to, to, you know, invest in things that they believe in socially, great for them. Uh, now, uh, what's going on, however, is it's uh, we're all being forced to do it, uh, and, and uh, so that you know the, the Securities and Exchange Commission is now forcing um, this kind of thing through. So, uh, 
that that's the part to to uh, to uh, object to. Not, not that they're doing it and selling it to people who want it. Let's move to the other conversation that has become very prominent within central banks, and that's sort of trying to address inequality, uh, social justice as well, racial justice. They're really trying to do everything. I'm really curious as to how you can actually do that without disadvantage one other part of the you know, the group, the community. I don't think it's central banks are not going to be in the business of transferring wealth from one to another. But I do think that a lot of these efforts uh, will lead to, well, the, the, the unintended consequences here are for one to competition. So, you know, what can a central bank do about these things? Well, they can keep interest rates really low and Oh, that might do something. They also have, have a long history of forcing banks to make unprofitable loans. We're, we're going to repeat 2008, well, 2006. Uh, there was a Community Reinvestment Act. There was all sorts of pressure from bank regulators for banks to lend money to uh, people who, it turned out, couldn't afford the loans. And then they destroyed a generation of, of underprivileged Black other people who took out big subsidized loans to buy houses, and then things went bad and, and they lost the house and they lost the loan. So we're going to repeat that, which is counterproductive to the people. That that's the, I, w- I wouldn't want to sell objection to this stuff on, well, you're going to be hurting, you're going to be taking money from white people and giving it to black. That's not what's going to happen. But you're going to hurt the people that you want to help through this kind of thing. You're going to create boondoggles. It's going to be politicized that our Fed is already forced banks to give money to community action groups who kind of tend to support one political party rather than another. And, uh, you know, they're, they're going to regulate banks internally, force them to uh, how, how they do stuff, run diversity and inclusion and so forth. It's just not a business that uh, central banks really, you know, um, in a, justice issues are, are, are important, but that's not what a central... Let, let me tell you my most fundamental problem. It means a central bank is just part of a political administration. That's, there's fine that there's political, you know, the Treasury Department, the, you elect the new president, the president appoints a uh, Department of the Treasury, the Treasury Department goes out on a political agenda. The, the central banks are becoming just one more agency of that sort. Now, in a, but central banks have great independence. And in a, in a democracy, you only get great independence if you respect limits on your power. So if you go out and forcibly push one political party's political agenda, favor its constituents, give money to people who support that party, not the other party, uh, do things that that party wants, you cannot remain independent. So what we're going to lose out of this is, is, I think, a great achievement of the last 50 years is independent central banks who are not just at the whim of the administration, but you can only stay independent if you stick to your knitting. If you don't stick to your knitting, you just become one more, one more. If you're an independent political agency, well, you know, you're doing your own. You, we don't have that in democracies. We're just not allowed to go off and do something very political, transfer money from one to another, subsidize this, subsidize that. So you become part of the party in power and then, then you have to lose your independence. And that's, that's sad if, if the money printing just becomes, we put the money printing aside. In, in a democracy, we don't just 51%, you do everything. You put certain things aside. The Supreme Court is supposed to be you know, somewhat removed from the passions of the day. Uh, the central bank was supposed to be somewhat removed from the passions of the day. You, you decide on a 
kind of bipartisan basis, look, we're not going to let interest rates, printing money and and, uh, telling the banks who to lend to, that's not going to be something that we switch every four years who the banks give money to, and it stays independent. Well, that's that's on its way out. I'm curious then to get your views on whether you should have past central bank chairs moving to the treasury. You know, should we have limits between that? You know, a, a five year limit or or a or a ban potentially on that? No, I don't think so. And I mean, uh, Janet Yellen is a uh, a remarkable person, and she's very competent. And um, I actually, you know, central banks have to work with treasuries in the sense that. Money and bonds are kind of the same thing. And, and from an academic point of view, monetary and fiscal policy are not separate. They have to be coordinated. So I don't see any problem with that at all. And uh, I think Janet Yellen in particular has been quite good about uh, being an independent central banker when she was a central banker and being a uh, loyal, um, I mean, I disagree with half of what she's doing, but she's certainly a, uh, you know, a, a doing a good job as a democratic uh, treasury secretary and her knowledge of finance. You know, we've had treasury secretaries who didn't really understand how checking accounts worked. Uh, so her knowledge of the financial system, I, I think, comes in. Handy. So I, I think honorable people can serve in all sorts of different roles and uh, and not need rules against that sort of thing. So final question. Let's go back to your book, Asset Pricing, that you wrote probably almost 20 years ago now. Yeah. It could be 20 years this year. If I'm not mistaken, still needs a revision. <laughs> what would you What would you change, or what would you add if if there's a revision coming in the works? Oh my gosh, uh, all sorts of stuff. I mean, unfortunately, right now I'm working on a new book, The Fiscal Theory of the Price Level. Uh, but maybe I'll go back to asset pricing. Uh, I think it's. I still think it's a good book, um, but it bears the idiosyncrasies of its time. Uh, what has changed? I, I now understand continuous time a lot better than I did, so uh, I would do a better job of that. There's a draft chapter on portfolio theory, which was supposed to make it in and, and never did. But of course, it's a book about asset pricing. It doesn't do anything about portfolio theory. Now, that's a part I think we got things to do. There's been a new, a big new effort since 2008. Uh, asset pricing is no longer about behavioralists versus rationalists. It's uh, the, the interesting new thing is the, let's call them institutional finance, the study of financial frictions. Um, now, it's not clear whether it's the the icing on the cake or whether it's the cake, but it's certainly important uh, understanding of uh, institutional frictions uh, that that we didn't have when I when I wrote the book. So that, but I'll let Marcus Brunemeyer uh, or uh, uh, other people doing that stuff uh, write. Maybe they should, they should write their own book, uh, and, and I should get back to the fiscal theory of the price level. Well, that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, John. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.